Well, as I've said already, it's a joy to be with you today and, and an opportunity to uh, reflect with you on the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's goodness to his church. And I thought it would be appropriate when I was thinking about what to preach on this morning and again this evening uh, was to home in on um, themes in Holy Scripture that tie in with the history and the life of the people of God through the ages and God's faithfulness to us. Uh, to think not just in terms of what you are as a particular congregation uh, here in Newton Ards, um, but what we are together as those who belong to what the creeds tell us is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church that spans the ages, the people of God made up of, of, of individuals from every tribe and language and family under heaven, uh, that we belong to that body which Jesus Christ has brought into existence, of which Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And to be able to look back over such a, a large sweep of time is testimony to the faithfulness of Jesus, the church builder. And, and really what I want to do uh, this morning, turning together to this passage in Ephesians that we uh, read just a few moments ago and, and looking especially at, at verse 12, um, where it says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's our text for this morning, but set in the context of the, the chapter uh, at large. Um, I, w- I want us to pause and, and to give some thought um, to who we are as the church and why we are here. Um, so, so looking back to our roots in God's plan and purpose, but also um, considering the reason why we exist as the people of God. Um, and, and then to this evening come and, and look to the future, uh, the next 250 years and longer if the Lord spares and the Lord blesses his work here. So looking backwards this morning, looking forwards this evening in, uh, with the help of, of the scriptures. We live in an age whenever firms and organizations are obsessed with the idea of why are we here and what are we about? Why are we here and what are we about? Uh, and, and it's filtered through into the church in, in different ways um, in, in terms of, of the church wanting some uh, uh, evocative strapline, uh, a mission statement, a purpose statement that, that will uh, identify uh, what they stand for and, and where they are going. Um, and and uh, sometimes it, it just sounds catchy and it doesn't get beyond that, but there, there is a place and there is good reason to have a sense of, of who we are and why we are here. And, and the best place to, to look for a purpose statement, for want of a better word, is Scripture itself, because there God provides us with all that we need to know about his intention for us as those who bear his name and are called to serve him in this world. And, and Ephesians is a particularly good portion of Scripture to turn to, because the book of Ephesians um, is all about God's people as his new society, his new humanity. Um, it, it is the, the identity that we have as Christians, not simply in our individual uh, Christian life ourselves, but bound up with that company of people um, with whom we are bound in Christ. 
uh, those who are our brothers and sisters. And as I've said already, it goes beyond the confines of a particular congregation, but it embraces um, not only the denominations to which we belong, but ultimately the wider church that spans the world itself and, and history also. Here, in, in, in this particular opening section of the book of Ephesians, uh, writing to not simply one congregation, but um, multiple congregations around which this letter was circulated, um, Paul was addressing uh, a crisis situation in the church. Uh, even there in the New Testament world, not, not long after these churches had been brought into, in, into existence, these churches find themselves in difficulty. Uh, and, and as so often has been the case through church history, the greatest churches, the greatest difficulties that the church has faced um, do not come from the outside um, through those who would persecute God's people, but they come from the inside um, and the conflicts and divisions that arise among God's people. Uh, and, and in the case of the church in Ephesus especially, uh, there was division. He, he will go on and speak about this. Uh, later on in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 and, and indeed bringing it to its, its, its application uh, from chapter 4 onwards. Uh, but th this, this church which, which um, had, had come into existence through uh, preaching the message of Jesus Christ, the, the, the Messiah of God come to bring salvation to the world. Yes, there were Jewish people um, had been brought to faith and brought into the congregation, but there were also a growing number of Gentile people being brought into that congregation. Um, and, and if you know anything about the New Testament world, um, you, will, you will know that, that the Jews have no dealings with the Gentiles. Um, and, and the cultural differences, as well as the, um, the, the uh, ethnic differences that existed between them, uh, meant that even when Gentiles were brought to faith alongside Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, they, they harbored many of their old prejudices and, and the old divisions were surfacing within those congregations. Uh, it was almost as though there were first-class and second-class divisions in church membership. Uh, the Jews regarding themselves as the elite ones belonging to the first order, um, but the Gentiles being treated as though they were second-class members in the church of Jesus Christ. And, and that was a serious issue. And, and Paul seeks to address it um, in everything he says. And, and, and as is always the case in the writings of the Apostle Paul, um, he doesn't launch into the cold face of the problem and say, well, here's a list of things you can do to put things right. No, he says, take a step back. Remind yourself of who you actually are. Remind yourself of how you came into existence as a church. And remind yourselves of why what your calling is as the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and, and so Paul takes us literally back to the very roots of our existence. Long before we were even conceived in our mother's womb, long before we were ever born into this world or stepped into a church and a gathering of God's people. No, he takes us back before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, to show that what we are in this world and in this life and in our history as the people of God, has its roots in eternity and in the eternal decree of God. What God had planned from before the beginning of time 
went far beyond the creation of the world, the maintaining of the world in his providence, but the salvation of a people for himself out of the lostness of our humanity. In the mystery of God, they fall. Adam's fall was part of that plan. It's one of those, those theological conundrums that, that we will never fully fathom, certainly not in this life and perhaps not even in the life to come. But God, in his heavenly wisdom, ordains not only that there would be the fall of humanity, but there would be redemption and restoration. And, and, and Paul wants us to appreciate exactly what is bound up with God's plan of redemption. And it goes far beyond what we so often narrowly and naively regard as being saved. You know, it's one of those words that is very biblical, but has become something of a cliche uh, in evangelical circles. We, it trips off our tongue. Oh, I'm saved. Are you saved? Um, but, but fail to stop and, and think how much is bound up with that great truth. What it means to be taken out of darkness into light, raised from spiritual death to newness of life, and that there is, there is um, uh, an eternity of wonder bound up with what it means to be saved. And, and, and Paul traces out what God's purpose was from the very beginning, um, that we might be blessed in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in a, in a very real sense, right at the very start, we are, we are being stopped in our tracks and we are being, we are, we are being reminded, yes, we are, we are um, gathered here in this lovely little building here um, in, in this part of, of the province. But where are we really this morning if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? The reality is, as Hebrews 12 reminds us, we are actually with the angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect in the heavenly realms. And Paul talks here about us being seated together with Christ in the heavenly realm. So yes, physically, we are gathered here on earth, but in our Lord Jesus Christ, we are spiritually, um, we are enjoying the fellowship of heaven itself. We are engaged in the worship that is being poured out before the throne of God in the realm above. And that's an astonishing thing. And it gives us a whole new perspective on what we are. Uh, as part of God's redeemed humanity, we have been lifted up above the mundane squalor of the existence of humanity at large. We have got a reason for hope. We have got a reason to rejoice because of what we have been made in Christ and where we have been elevated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as Paul goes on to unpack that, speaking about our being adopted into God's family. It, it is ultimately that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. It, it's something he, he, he repeats and reiterates, but, but he, it comes out again uh, in, in verse 12, that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, so what are you what are you meant to be as a congregation of the Lord's people here in this provincial town of Newton Arts? What is it that, that should be the defining mark of your existence, not just for the hour uh, on Sabbath morning and Sabbath evening when you gather for public worship, but as 
the people of God from this congregation dotted around this local area, as people get to know you, as people get to see you, what is it that makes you stand out? Well, Paul says the one thing that should make you stand out more than anything else, that everything about your existence would point the finger away from you and what you are in yourself to God and what, you, what he has made you in Jesus Christ. You are his new humanity. You have been renovated, not only rescued from your fallen, broken condition and sin, but you have been made new in fellowship with his Son and by his Holy Spirit. It's something that spills over into every aspect of what we are and what we do, and I want us to reflect upon it in the time that remains. What does it entail for us to do what Paul says we are called to do, to bring glory, to bring praise to God, and particularly to highlight the grace of God in his dealings with sinners just like you and me? Well, in the first place, it is a matter of being. It has to do with what we are. Uh, And that's true of us individually, but it's true of us collectively as the people of God, as a a congregation. Uh, It's a matter of what we are. I think stepping into a church is a bit like um, parents looking for the first primary school for their children. and, And there's a choice out there that there's maybe two or three primary schools in your catchment area and you're scratching your head, which one should I send them to? Uh, And the best thing to do is to go and visit. Go and spend half an hour in the school meeting the staff, observing the classes and and, and very quickly you'll realise that that each individual school has got its own particular flavour. There's an ethos about the place. And and the same is true with churches. Churches. Um, that whenever you step into, into a church, you very quickly get a sense of the ethos about this place. What's its feel? What's the atmosphere? Um, and, and, and Paul is saying that as, as if we are being the kind of churches that God wants us to be, then, then a, a, um, a stranger stepping through this, the doors of this building and, and, and stepping into this act of worship and mingling with you beforehand and afterwards... What's the, what's the first thing that should stand out? That there's something about the lives of these people that just radiates the beauty of God and the grace of God in the way that you live and the way that you relate. You know, so often, we, we perhaps even as those who, who profess to be evangelicals, we're, we're more obsessed with what we do and what we're seen to be doing than what we are. And, and we... we, we, we we, we, we forget that what we, what we do is simply the outflow of what we are. The way we behave, the way we relate, simply gives people a glimpse of our soul and our, the deepest reality about ourselves. <clears throat> Paul isn't saying that that's what we do is not important, uh, and, and indeed he'll speak to that very directly in, in what he has to say to the Ephesians in chapter 2, But rather, he says, the most basic need that we have as Christians is to be what God wants us to be, first and foremost. Very quickly, it becomes clear uh, as you you read the opening verses of of chapter 2, as Paul reminds uh, the the Ephesians what they once were. Chapter 1 says, this is what you now are. 
Therefore, this is what you must be. But remind yourselves of what you once were. And and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what we once were prior to our conversion, prior to being brought to faith in Jesus Christ uh, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. By nature, we are, we're, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We were the objects of God's wrath, and we were, as he will go on to say in chapter 4, darkened in our understanding. Our, 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 our minds, our thought processes were so darkened by our sinful instincts that we could not make sense of the way of the, uh, what the world is and what God wants it to be. And, and it stands to reason. If that, is, if that is a reminder of what we, are by na- of what we were by nature prior to our conversion, then, then it's clear that God cannot be glorified by the dead, the damned, and the darkened. If that's our state which is our natural state outside of Christ, then, then God cannot be honored and exalted by that kind of life or the, the, the praise that such a person might offer. But by nature, we are cut off from God and our entire life is contaminated by this godless world and all its influences. So, so what it boils down to is that there's something deeply flawed in our humanity. You know, it, it's even acknowledged in the secular world unwittingly uh, because so often if you go to, to visit a, a secular psychiatrist or, or, or counsellor, um, they will tell you, you've got to get in touch with your inner self. You've got to face your demons. You've got to, you've got to look in, in, inside to see what you're really like. And, and even though their theology is wrong in terms of what they want to make of that when they take you there, at least they... The, 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 the perception is right. Uh, each one of us does have an inner self, a real you, um, that, that, that shapes and molds and drives all that is lived out in your life. And, and, and Paul says, if you're going to honor God, live to his glory, give him praise, then something needs to change deep within you. You need, in the language of Jesus to Nicodemus, you need to be born again from above by the Spirit, lifted out of darkness, brought into his glorious light. And the key to appreciating what that means is found in in looking back at, at, at how we were created as a race in Adam at the very beginning. Uh, There was something unique about the way in which uh, God went about his creative process. Up until that point, on on the sixth day when Adam was made and Eve as well, God had simply spoken every, every detail of the world and universe into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. And, and, and God changed his tack when it came to the making of man. Because we're told that he, he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And then when 
it became apparent to Adam by God's full intent that it was not good for the man to be alone. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. He took a rib from him, and out of that rib he created Eve to be his soulmate and his wife. And then he said, this is man made in our image in our likeness, male and female, human beings were meant to be the image bearers of the living God. Well, there's, there's a series of sermons to unpack what it means to be made in the image of God, but, but think of it in these terms. Um, being made in the image of God means that we, as the human species, male and female, were intended to be reflectors on earth of the glory of God in heaven. That the, that the likeness of God should be so impressed on us individually and on us collectively that, that even the angels looking on from heaven see something of a reflection of God in the way that we live and all that we are. So as that mirror image of God in our lives has been so disfigured because of sin, we fundamentally need to be remade from the inside out. And that's precisely what God does in salvation by the life-giving work of the Spirit, the justifying grace of his Son. So, so in, in the language of John Stott, the, the starting point of the Christian life is nothing less than man made new. In our natural state, in the nature that we inherited from Adam, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no desire for God. Indeed, our only desire was to run away from God. We were rebels by nature, rebels by choice. And, and if, if there's going to be a change of circumstances, there needs to be a change of heart that God needs to exchange a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that what we now are in Christ is altogether new. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's a glorious reality. And, and, and it, it transforms all that we live out and all that we do as we seek to serve. So, so in the first place, if we are, as a church, and as God's people are going to, are, are, are going to glorify God in, in, in the, the multifaceted way that that entails, then it begins as a matter of being what we are long before we begin to work that out in what we do. Here, here's another B that helps us to understand what Paul's talking about. It's not just a matter of being, it's a matter of belonging. A matter of belonging. Can't, can't help but notice this other little detail that um, Paul ex uses as he expresses himself. is the fact that he uses plural and not singular language. Now, you, you might think that's pretty arcane. You know, we didn't come here for a, a grammar lesson this morning. Um, but actually, biblical grammar is important. Uh, and and it's, it's significant that the apostle uniformly uses the second person plural in his verbs as he speaks to God's people 
because he said it's not just about you privately and personally, it's about all of you together as the people of God, those who belong to his family. Uh, because it's something that we need to, to work out corporately. Clearly, he's not just speaking about that first generation of converts in the New Testament church, but, but he, he includes all who belong to God through faith, all who will belong to God through faith, all who have in the past belonged to God through faith. It, it's a matter of belonging to the church of Jesus Christ, the body of God's people. You know, at, at, at the, the most basic level, it, it, it just throws out a challenge to the, the, the rampant individualism that's, that's engulfed our society in these days in which we live. It's all about me. It's what I want. Don't tell me how to live or what to do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm the, the captain of the, my, my soul. I'm the master of my destiny is the, is, the, is the view of life that so many people embrace today. Uh, and the Bible's answer, that, no, that was never the case. The very fact that it says it was not good for Adam to be alone, that trying to carve out an existence as in a solitary capacity is fundamentally flawed in terms of functioning as, as human beings. We need one another. Uh, that's true at a very natural level in the families to which we belong. But it's true in a, in a, in a more significant level in terms of the spiritual family to which we belong, the fact that we have a church of which we are a part, a body of the people of God. Indeed, Paul tells the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a member of it. Power and the beauty of God's recreating grace um, is seen at a corporate level relationships are changed. This was to be worked out in the Ephesian church and the surrounding churches as that Jew-Gentile hostility was to be dealt with and, and there was to be peace in that new community and fellowship and acceptance. But another equally significant part of what Paul is saying is, is to address those who would factionalize the church, break it up, disturb the peace of, of God's people. And, and again, in, in chapter 2, especially the second half of the chapter, he, he homes in upon those who were so fixated with their ethnic roots, whether it be Gentile or Jew, that they'd allowed that to override their most significant roots in salvation and through God's Son. That, that's just one example of the many things that carve up the people of God. In, 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 uh, in so many situations, it's, it's political or it's cultural. Um, there are just so many, or it's social, that there, there are just so many things that come in and, and, and they, they divide fellowship between those who are fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and members of his body. Indeed, they the, the, the thrust of what Paul goes on to say in, in, about the, the importance of preserving oneness amongst God's people and playing our part within God's people uh, comes out in chapter 4, verse 3, where um, a, 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 a translation of it to capture the force of it is, spare no effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
You, you, you know, so often we pay, pour more energy and effort into fighting our battles within our congregations. If we poured the same amount of energy into restoring peace within our churches, it would be a very different story throughout the body of Christ. Again, this is not just some isolated injunction. It's, it's, it's bound up with the very essence of what we are meant to be in our salvation. Uh, because, uh, as we've said already, we are, we are God's image bearers. Um, the, the image that has been shattered by sin is being restored by grace. And, and what is the reflection of God that we are to, pre- to present? Well, just as God in heaven is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each fully God, each fully, uh, and, and together fully God, um, there, there, is, there is this glorious unity and diversity within the Godhead of the Bible. The Holy Trinity is extraordinary. And, and, and sadly, in our, in, our, in our contemporary church, too often we lose sight of the wonder of the Trinity. Uh, because if that's the reflection that we are meant to mirror to the world, that, uh, that the people should walk into this building and, and they should see a cross-section of humanity here. You know, I've often said to my churches over the different places that I've served, you know, the, you know, the, the, the evidence that the gospel is doing its work in a particular congregation is that if you draw a circle on a half-mile radius around the building, there should be a cross-section of your local community in the worshipping community. People from every walk of life, every racial background, every, every um, representation of humanity should be here amongst God's people, which is a challenge because so often we gravitate towards our existing social groupings rather than spiritual social groupings that come about through grace. It's a matter of being. It's a matter of belonging. But one last little thought before we close, and that is it's a matter of becoming. It's all very well to hear these words and be thrilled by the lofty vision that Paul expresses for us, but but they seem a million miles away from reality. That was certainly true for the original recipients of this letter. It's not just that we live in a messy world, which we do, but we live in a messy church. You know, you know, it's, it's often said whenever um, a new member or somebody's presenting themselves for membership in, in, in the church and they come before the elders and, and, and they, they, they say, you know, I've found the perfect church. And, and in some of the churches that I've served, the elders say, well, you've just spoiled it by your arrival because, because there is no perfect church. There may be good churches, but there's no perfect church. Every church under heaven is subject both to mixture and to error, that, that we, we all fail. And, 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 and we need to recognize that, and we need to face up to our failures. But Paul's a realist, and he knows full well that what God begins by grace in this world will be completed by grace in the world to come. That's why he, he says in, in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what we begin to taste here in this world, what we begin to try and work out in practice with all the failures that are within us and around us, it will be made perfect in the inheritance of what will be ours in heaven. Just as sanctification 
is both something definitive, you are holy, but also progressive, you are growing in holiness. So the way in which God's glory is reflected in the church. Paul puts it to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, you are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. And that will continue until you are finally glorified when Jesus Christ returns and his work is brought to perfection and completion. In many ways, that constitutes the burden of what Paul says in the remainder of this letter as he he works it out in the details of, of, um, uh, of the life of the congregation. But the key to making progress in this, um, in this process of being transformed from one degree of glory into another is found in, in chapter 5, verse 18, where he says, go on, keep on being filled with the Spirit. That the one who animates us, the one who energizes us, the one who directs us is the Spirit of Christ within us. And it's not without significance that he is not simply the Holy Spirit, but he is, as Paul says elsewhere, the Spirit of Christ. So when the Spirit comes to us, Christ comes to us. And it says we find ourselves face to face with our, our incarnate and our, our, our crucified, risen, exalted Savior as the Spirit gives us sight of him in the Word. That not only do we appreciate how great a salvation we have in him, but we see in him the template of our salvation because God's purpose is that we shall one day be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In this world, we are always on the way, and we don't know what's around the corner. But we're heading for glory. We're heading for the beauty of the new Jerusalem. The new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. That's, that's our destination with all that it entails when Jesus welcomes us there at his return. We are at best pilgrims passing through. We are, we are here for a brief moment. And, and before we know it, we're on the way out. So it should affect what we value where our treasure is stored, how we expend our energies when we begin to, to see of what, what, what God has planned for us and what he intends for us, then, then we should want to grow towards that. You, know, you, you ask your kids, you ask your four-year-old, five-year-old, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a fireman. You know, I, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a nurse. And, 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 and any child who is really gripped by that sense of calling from an early age, you'll, you'll see it reflected in how they choose to play, what they take an interest in, what, they're, what, what shapes the course of their life. Well, if we, if we are gripped by what God intends for us in our salvation, in the glory of the world to come, then that should shape what we are and how we live individually and corporately as the people of God to the praise of his glory and grace. The the Apostle Paul puts his finger on it uh, so eloquently in in what he says to the Galatians in in chapter 4 and and verse 
19, he, he, he says there, um, um, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Your, your, your minister, David, um, you ask him, what is it that keeps you going? What is, what is your burden for the work that God has entrusted to you? You know, as he looks down on, on your faces Sunday by Sunday, what is it that, that his passion is, his desire? That, that you, dear friends, would, be, um, would have Christ formed in you, that you would become Christ-like in your individual existence and in your shared existence as the family of God in his place. And we should never rest in that longing and all the endeavor that is bound up with it. We should pour heart and soul into the pursuit of what it means to be to the glory of God and to live for his praise in this world in which we live. Amen. <laughs>